Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. On today's program, we'll look at the certainty of God's Word. God is eager to perform His Word, and His Word cannot fail. Even when we falter and make mistakes, God's Word and promises will still stand. Part one of Cheryl's message titled, God's Unfailing Word. So God's Word cannot fail. It's interesting because I've been looking at this passage and preparing my message. And Sunday, having not spoken to Brian in about five weeks, okay, so Brian was gone for two and a half. I was gone for a week. Then he was just gone this this last week and we had a son getting married and family coming in. It was like, hey, Brian. Good to see you again. I'm your wife, Cheryl. Because we had a son get married last weekend. He's married now. He's happily married now. I saw him on Wednesday, very happy. But, and you know, that just, I saw Brian across the reception. We even sat next to each other, but we were both secretly filming our grandchildren on stage. There was a bride and groom, but we were filming the the flower girl and the ring bearer. That's what grandparents do. But last Sunday, Brian quoted from John 10, 35, and he said, and the scripture cannot fail. That's what Jesus said. And the scripture cannot fail. Jesus speaking of his own imminent death and his fulfillment of the scripture said, and the scripture cannot fail. I had, I had written that down for my notes for today. And then Brian said it on Sunday. And I'm like, wait, that's not in your text. That's for me. But God was confirming again. The scripture cannot fail. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth seven times. All the dross has been removed from the word of God. You are getting the essential gold, the essential um, goodness and purity of God's word. Psalm 18, 30, as for the Lord, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. It's proven. It works. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Genesis, as the book of beginnings, it starts out to prove to us the possibility of fallen man having a relationship with the living God and even walking with God. We can walk with God even in this broken fallen world. But it also shows us the unfailing, unfaltering, and unflinching fulfillment of God's word. Don't you love that? 
What God has said will absolutely take place, no matter how improbable, no matter how seemingly ridiculous, no matter how far-fetched it may appear. When God states something, it becomes an absolute. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, God says, Remember the former things of old, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Romans 4, 17, I love this. In speaking of Abraham, Paul writes, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead. He gives life to dead situations. He gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Things that have yet to be created, things that have yet to come to pass, he calls it out and says, it will happen. God is zealous to perform his word and his word cannot fail. God's word stands even when we falter, even with unbelievers, even when people don't want to believe. God's word still is true, still works, still holds. Even when circumstances are contrary to it, even when we feel rejected and diminished and an outsider from it, and even after it's been fulfilled. It continues to be fulfilled. There is still more. God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, you perhaps remember, I will make you a great nation and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 7, to you, to you and your descendants, I will give this land. Genesis 13, verses 15 through 16. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Genesis 15, verses four through five. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your descendants be. Genesis 15, 13, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Genesis 17, verses two through three, the promise of descendants again. And I will bless her, Sarah, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be called a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Genesis 17, 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this set time next year. And Genesis 18.10, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Remember how preposterous this sounded to Sarah? Remember how she laughed in her heart, thinking of her advancing age, 80, and Abraham's advancing age in his 90s? What might have seemed a slight possibility when they entered Canaan, when they were just at those young ages of 60s and 70s? (laughs) 
after 23 years in the land and advancing age, it absolutely seemed ridiculous by any human standard. Absolutely ridiculous. Abraham had only a promise from God's word. I've told you this story before, but it's one of my favorite. Streams in the Desert, the devotional by Letty Kalman that we've all been so blessed by. It was first published in 1925 after the death of her husband, Charles. They were missionaries that went to Japan in 1913 till 1919, and they were forced by Charles' health to return to the U.S., but they started something called the Oriental Missionary Society, OMS, which is still, still in um, service today. But their goal from the time they went there in 1913 was to get a copy of the Gospel of Matthew in Japanese to every household in Japan, and they did it. However, before they moved to Japan, they, they felt this call to be missionaries. And so they sold absolutely everything they had and they gave the proceeds to their church. And before they were to leave, having sold everything without any money, the church took up an offering for them. And then they gave them everything that was in the offering. And do you know what all those offering bags contained? 25 cents, one quarter. That was it. That was it. They were going to Japan. They had sold everything. They had been wealthy. They'd given it all to the church. And now they had 25 cents. And her husband picked up that quarter and he looked at his wife and he said, oh, Letty, look, 25 cents and all the promises of God. And with that 25 cents and all the promises of God, By 1919, they had gotten, as I said, a copy of the Gospel of Matthew translated into Japanese to every household living in Japan. He was forced back in 1919, like I said, because of health problems. And so she wanted to bless the people who were still on the mission field in Japan. So she began to collect whatever she heard, if it was a quote from her pastor in church, if it was something that she read in her own personal devotions or a book, she began to make a copy of it and just write it down. And she sent it out in an encouragement letter, encouraging letter to those on the mission field. Well, those on the mission field collected all of those and they sent it back to Letty. And she she compiled all of them into streams in the desert, which happens to be since 1925, the best-selling Christian 365-day devotional ever. And it continues to support the OMS. God's word does not fail, even when we falter. Ronald Reagan was famously quoted as saying, here we go again, concerning his opponent's rhetoric reaction and activity. And I think this is a perfect, a perfect heading for Genesis chapter 20. Don't you? Here we go again. After God has clarified twice to Abraham that Sarah will have the promised son within a year, 
In Genesis chapter 17, God said, no, it's Sarah. And he changed Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah just to get the notion across to Abraham. This is the covenant wife. After the divine visitation that we studied in Genesis chapter 18, what Abraham does next is shocking because he knows better. He has seen the Lord. He has heard the Lord. He has had victory in the Lord. He has defeated aggressive kings by the Lord. He has seen the validity of God's promise. He has been blessed by Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. He has had clarification on God's word. He has been given a specific time that God would do this. And he has fully entered into a covenant with God that includes Sarah. And after all this, when Abraham enters into Gerar, he turns to Sarah and says, you know what? Tell them you're my sister. If anyone asks, you're my sister. Why did he do this? Abraham will later say to Abimelech, I did this because I was afraid. I felt certainly that there is no fear of God in this place. Sarah, the covenant wife, is given into the secular court of Abimelech. Can you believe that? Abraham actually gives away the covenant wife that is to give birth to the child of the covenant. Now, to me, it's like, we are either way over here or way over here, aren't we? So Abraham's either trying to make God's promises come true or he's totally complicating God's promises by his self-preservation. Isn't that us? Whenever we try to help God out, we are either uh, complicating it or we're always complicating it and we're moving the promise of God further away. We're actually delaying it. Whenever we try to fix it, whenever we try to do something, I remember, um, I remember when my youngest daughter wasn't walking with Jesus. And I would think of these great lectures to give her. Oh, I thought of such great lectures. I mean, they should be published in a book. They were so wonderful. And every time I gave her a lecture, it was absolutely counterproductive. It was, it, it was like the worst thing I could possibly have said or done. And, and you know, God began to speak to me like, Cheryl, could you just let me work? Could you take your hands away? Because my hands were so on it, so involved in it, God couldn't get through. God is committed to his word and promise to Abraham. So much so that God's work even reaches to a pagan king. God knows exactly how to speak and when to speak. And here's somebody who doesn't even have the fear of God. Abraham said that there's no fear of God in this place. I tell them I'm a prophet. They won't care. I tell them this is a covenant wife. They won't care. But God knows exactly what force to speak with and when to come. So he speaks to this king during Abimelech's most personal, intimate, and vulnerable time in his sleep. 
in his sleep. Sleep is so important to men. I know because I wake up my husband like three or four times because he's snoring. Brian is super nice to me except for at night when he's snoring. And that's the only time he calls me woman. The other time it's Cheryl, honey, you know, love bug. Not really. That was just mine. But he'll, he'll be, but the minute, you know, like last night, three times, Brian, and I had earplugs on. And I'm, I'm hitting him. He's like, woman! I'm like, just, just turn on your side. And he kind of does that, but then he flops right back. So I'm, you know, doing this again. Woman! It's like, I guess it's his night push button. You know, where, where I push him, it's always, when I push him at night, it's always, woman! It's not like even like, what? Or Cheryl, what are you doing? It's always, woman! I kind of find it's interesting. Sleep is so important to men. But God speaks to this man through a dream. And God strong arms this king. God knows exactly what to say. And to this king, he says, you're a dead man. You know, I tried that. It doesn't work. You're a dead man. It works when it comes from God. You're a dead man. I think in our naivety, we try to choose the means God should use. Could you just go to Abimelech and say, uh, give Sarah back really nicely, God. Like, do it in your lovey voice. You know, God's like, um, that won't work. I've got another phrase to use. You're a dead man. That will work. You know, when we're praying for people, this is why God wants our hands off. Because God knows how to say it, when to say it, and the force to use. Our means are ineffective. We don't know what God knows. And God knows what works. So he says, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abel, Abimelech then declares his righteousness. I didn't know. You know, I didn't touch her. But God says, no, I don't think so. I didn't let you touch her. Let's get this straight. You're not righteous. I didn't let you touch her. I am so sovereign over your life, Abimelech. All your problems, everything you're going through is because I'm intruding into your life. And you're going to die unless you return this woman to that man. Abimelech is not righteous. God said, for I withheld you from sinning against me. Not against Abraham. I withheld you from sinning against me. That's how strong the covenant of God is. You intrude in that covenant. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. You intrude into what God has done. And God says, your issue is with me. You can tell that to anyone you see making love eyes at Brian. Pastor Brian. God commands this Philistine king to restore Sarah to Abraham. And then he says, and you know what? Let's go a step further. You need Abraham to pray for you. You want relief from the situation you're in? The only way you're going to get relief is if Abraham 
prays for you. The only way that this curse that is presently on your household can possibly be removed is if my man Abraham prays for you. In other words, you're indebted to Abraham. Abraham is not indebted to you. So early in the morning, Abimelech calls his servants. He tells them everything, and the servants are afraid of Abraham. Then Abimelech called Abraham, and Abimelech restored Sarah to Abraham. God is going to fulfill his word. Like Abraham, we often work, and unknowingly, we are working against the very promises that God has made to us. We are slowing things down. But aren't you relieved that God is committed to fulfilling his word? Even when we get it wrong, God gets it right. God fulfills his word to Abraham and Sarah. We read in Genesis 21, one through eight, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. He did for the person, Sarah. He did it at the time. He did the work, conception, childbirth, and God did it all exactly as he promised. But this is not the end of the promise. This is not the end of the word of God. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just give us one promise and say, okay, that's it, enjoy. That's your one promise. You can wait all your life, but that's your one promise. No, aren't you so glad as we sang that all his promises are yes and amen, that he gives us promise after promise. And this promise about Isaac, about this descendant, this is only the beginning of the promises. This is the validation that everything God has ever promised is going to happen. It's going to happen. Here is the venue. Here is the way in. God not only keeps his word to Abraham and Sarah, but also to Hagar. In ministry, one of the hardest aspects is when you have to let somebody go. It's so hard. I mean, I would like to just mother everybody. My, mom, my mother-in-law, Carol, was telling me she was an accountant for years. And she worked for a large company that was downsizing. And she was in this department and she said every day over the loudspeaker, they would call one of her coworkers to the office. And the coworker would leave and go to the office and then return with two security guards. And they had to collect all of their belongings. And then these security guards would escort them to their car and take their, confiscate their keys. And that would be it. And I remember my mother-in-law was just tortured by watching one coworker that she loved and invested in, all except for the Jehovah Witness, that was not as bad as everybody else. I remember she said, that woman was so unhappy every day. But even that, my mother-in-law called me crying when she was removed from work. It's one of the hardest aspects of it. But when... Isaac is weaned at this party that they threw, and Isaac could have been anywhere from three to five years old. Ishmael at this time is anywhere from 16 to 19 years old. She sees Ishmael mocking, teasing. It can even go so far as a physical 
uh, abuse, what she saw. It's a very serious matter, the way he was mocking, the way he was taunting this little child. You know, it's, it's perverse when you see a teenager mocking a three to five-year-old, hurting and frustrating. Sarah is very displaced. And she tells Abraham her concern. God made many promises to Abraham. One of them was that he would be the father of many nations. Abraham and Sarah were well past the age of having children, yet God reminded them that this indeed would happen. God's word is true no matter how impossible we think the situation may be. His word will prevail despite our failures, faithlessness, and forgetfulness. It is so important to remind ourselves of what God has done in our lives and remember that God cannot fail and that with Him, all things are possible. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll continue our look at the certainty of God's Word as we continue our series, Our Great Creator, in the book of Genesis with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.